You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll get to those stories in a moment, but we begin with breaking details of a police incident that could severely impact your evening commute. The emergency situation has closed the Braid Street SkyTrain station. Our Jay Durant is live in the newsroom tonight with more. Jay, passengers experiencing some pretty long delays. That's right, Sophie. TransLink says it could be several hours before it's sorted out. Late this afternoon, there was a police incident at Braid Station. Now, while the public is not at risk, Officers will be on scene for some time investigating. A bus bridge has been set up for both directions at Columbia, Sapperton, Braid and Lougheed. We're told the Expo line to King George is still running normally. So, All right, we'll keep an eye on the situation and continue to update our viewers throughout the evening. In the meantime, more evidence tonight that Canada's anti-money laundering system has completely failed and B.C. is paying a huge price. Details outlined in a recently obtained report reveal a deadly trade cycle involving Chinese gangs, drug trafficking and money laundering that's ending up in B.C. casinos and high-priced real estate. John Hua explains how it works. It's been dubbed the Vancouver model. Fentanyl, real estate and casinos. A triad used in a massive money laundering operation connected to the Chinese criminal syndicate of the same name. The BC problem other countries are using as an example of what to avoid. To put it bluntly, far too many officials and uh, you know law enforcement for the most part have had their heads in the sand. Warnings that existed for years confirmed in a November 2017 report from Australia's anti-money laundering agency now obtained by Global News. An international uh, professor in Australia uh, and international agencies uh, apparently knew more about this uh, than British Columbia's government. The problem begins in Guangdong province in southern China, home to 100 million people and known to investigators as the world's factory. Here, transnational crime groups churn out methamphetamine and the chemical precursors for fentanyl, which are transported around the world through criminally controlled shipping routes to West Coast drug dealing networks in Vancouver and Calgary. They don't care about what the consequences are for the people that are using it. It's all about how much money they're going to make and put in their coffers. The drug money is then laundered in casinos, where the cash goes into underground banks in Vancouver, which is transferred back to banks in Hong Kong and Guangdong, China. Hong Kong law offices transfer the cash to offshore shell corporations in Panama, the British Virgin Islands or Cayman Islands, which can then be routed back to underground banks and law firms in Vancouver. And that laundered money is parked in our real estate market. The laundered money that remains in China goes back to the factories in Guangdong, where the cycle begins again. I can only speculate that the reason that stronger action wasn't taken previously was the idea that somehow the province was profiting. A startling statement linking the problem to cash made through BC casinos and real estate taxes. We pay in other ways. Thousands of lives lost in the opioid crisis, locals priced out of the housing market, and the dubious distinction of being a haven for dirty money. John Hua, Global News. Vancouver police are investigating a suspicious incident at a church that's left parishioners shaken. The VPD says around 7 p.m. on April 5th, while parishioners were holding prayers at the Vancouver Standard Holiness Church on East 22nd Avenue, someone locked them inside. Witnesses recall hearing a noise but thought nothing of it until they went to leave and couldn't open the door. They did manage to get out through a side door. 
we're looking at all possibilities right now, and, and that's the other thing we're asking if there's anybody out there that may recognize um, this incident occurring at another church or another building in the area to please come forward. So we're looking at all possibilities. Police have not revealed how the door was secured. Anyone who may have seen something unusual or suspicious is asked to call the VPD. A decade after the disappearance of a Surrey man, an appeal today from the family of Kellen McElwee. The 25-year-old was last seen leaving a restaurant in Langley. Investigators believe he met with foul play. And Jennifer Palmer explains why the family is coming forward today. He had the widest smile and the kindest heart. Living without their son for a decade has been unbearable for the parents of Kellen McElwee. The last 10 years have not been easy for our family. Kellen would now have been 35 years old. March 19th, 2008 at 8.30 p.m. was the last time McElwee was seen. He was leaving the Keg Steakhouse and Bar in Langley on 202 Street. He left in his car. The 2006 Grey Honda Civic was found abandoned March 25th in the 5100 block of Halifax Street in Burnaby, a few blocks away from his condo. The integrated homicide investigation team is treating his disappearance as a murder. It's suspicious because from what we know of his background, from speaking with um, his friends, his associates, his family, this is completely out of the norm. He went to dinner and then disappeared. McElwee's case needs more tips to come in. He didn't have a criminal record or links to gangs. Police say he wasn't suicidal. McElwee's remains have never been found, and nobody has been arrested or charged. In a strange twist, police have also released these surveillance video photos of a man in McElwee's condo building. He was wearing a fur-trimmed hooded winter jacket along with a D.C. brand backpack. We have a strong idea that there are people that have information and they haven't come forward. So I'm speaking directly to those folks today. Please come forward, reach out to IHIT, and help us solve this murder. Perhaps over the years you have heard rumors or stories about what happened to Kellen. We would be eternally grateful if you are able to provide the police with any information. Jennifer Palma, Global News. Day two of a court hearing to determine whether accused killer Gabriel Klein is fit to stand trial for the 2016 stabbings of two Abbotsford High School students, one of them fatal. Our Ramina Dea was in the courtroom when the arguments wrapped and has more on what happens next. On Friday morning, Madam Justice Holmes will rule on whether Gabriel Klein is fit to stand trial. Bombshell testimony from Klein's psychiatrist, who testified Klein had told him he killed an individual and seriously harmed another. Klein is schizophrenic. His psychiatrist says his psychosis has worsened in the last two weeks and his mental state is fragile. Klein is accused of stabbing two grade nine students in their school in Abbotsford in November 2016. 13-year-old Letitia Reimer was killed. Her friends survived. I'm seeking a finding of unfitness. At this point, at least, we're not forcing Mr. Klein to have a trial at a time when he can't participate. In your opinion, that would be unfair to him? Yeah. And why is that? He's crazy. Klein looks dramatically different from 2016. He's about 30 pounds heavier. He was very slow in his movements. It's impossible to know whether he understands what's happening. 
Klein's in the middle of changing medications. There's a chance his mental state could improve. So the judge could decide to adjourn the fitness hearing for a few weeks. The murder trial is set to begin May 7th. Romina Dea, Global News. Big news from UBC this afternoon. The university pushing for the Millennium Line extension to go double the distance of the current plan, which stops at Arbutus. They'd like to see it go about seven kilometers further so that it reaches campus, and they're willing to put their own money on the line to do it. Aaron MacArthur is live with the details on this one. Aaron, uh, could be expensive for UBC, but they're willing to pay. Yeah, UBC has a lot of money to put on the table if they so choose. Remember, they have an endowment fund uh, pushing $2 billion and lots of real estate on campus that they could flip around to make some room and free up some capital if they wanted to. But again, none of that is on the table right yet. Let's look at what is on the table. Uh, The Millennium Line currently ends at VCC Clark, and it's already on the books to be extended out to our Butis Street on the west side. It's committed to in the mayor's 10-year plan. It's federally provincially and municipally funded expected to be completed by 2025 with a with a rapid bus system that would connect Arbuta Street to the campus. Now UBC is proposing to extend that another seven kilometers from Arbuta Street out to the campus but that's all they're proposing at this point. It's just a study. How much money could there be partners? All of that still to be decided but transit to UBC important to UBC leaders. In this circumstance, if the line were to be extended out to UBC, we'd be looking, obviously, to make some kind of contribution to that regional share, that 20%, and we'd be looking to work with other regional partners, so um, potentially developers, um, other, other folks that might be interested out here. We've had some discussions with First Nations as well, um, and so all that remains to be determined and would all be part of the discussions going forward. Now, we talked to TransLink about this proposed phase two. They are focused primarily just getting the rapid transit to Arbuta Street done. There's a lot on the books across the region, and getting rapid transit at least through the Broadway corridor out to Arbutus is their number one priority. And one last note about cost. We did some back-of-the-napkin calculations. Another seven kilometers of track, about a billion dollars. Chris, Sophie? All right, big money. Thanks very much. Aaron MacArthur reporting for us tonight. Now, bartenders and pub servers in this province are about to get a raise. The change affects those making the alternate minimum wage, including liquor servers, resident caretakers, and live-in camp leaders, to name a few. Currently, they make ten ten an hour. Come 2021, they'll be making a minimum of fifteen twenty, bringing the industry in line with the rest of the province. Farm workers, who also fall under an alternate minimum wage, We'll be getting an increase of 11.5% on all existing rates starting in January. Well, B.C.'s wine and craft beer industries are disappointed with a Supreme Court ruling today. That ruling upholds trade barriers restricting how much alcohol people are allowed to bring across provincial borders. Jill Bennett now on why critics of the decision are calling it a missed opportunity. B.C. has a lot of award-winning wine, but selling it to people in other Canadian provinces can be difficult. One of my clients, uh, Painted Rock, they ship to um, Japan, but they can't legally ship to Ontario. 
Sheikh Holson represented five BC wineries in a challenge of interprovincial trade barriers. It started with a fine levied against New Brunswicker Gerard Como after he brought 14 cases of beer and some other booze home from Quebec. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. The ruling, the status quo. Provinces can still restrict how much alcohol crosses provincial boundaries. It deals with the nature of what we are as a federation. Are we a national economic union or are we a series of balkanized provinces that can impose trade barriers upon each other? The response from smaller wine and beer makers in B.C., disappointment. This wine seller says the issue is provincial liquor board monopolies, something B.C. producers grapple with every day. This producer makes more money selling to a uh, Norwegian liquor board than they do selling to not only British Columbia but other liquor boards in Canada. The ruling allows the continued provincial control of alcohol, but not if it's a barrier to trade, leaving Canada with different rules depending on the province. British Columbia, Manitoba and Nova Scotia do allow uh, their residents to order from uh, other provinces and uh, have it brought in without any uh, impediments, uh, but there's uh, obviously seven provinces that still have restrictions. Since when is a Canadian product imported? If you live in Ontario or Quebec or New Brunswick. Lawyers involved in the case say even though the ruling came from the highest court, the fight isn't over, and likely all liquor laws in Canada need to be looked at. Jill Bennett, Global News. And that's not all. Keith Baldry joins us now with the broader picture of the Supreme Court ruling today and how it affects the politicking between Alberta and B.C. over the pipeline, Keith. Yeah, a lot of legal experts jumping on this uh, ruling today, and uh, again, on its impact on this huge fight uh, between B.C. and Alberta over the Kinder Morgan Pipeline. Alberta, of course, uh, uh, has introduced a law, Bill 12, that would give it the power to uh, turn off the taps or regulate the amount of oil going to, uh, to B.C. or other provinces. David Evie, the B.C. Attorney General, jumping on this today, saying this ruling uh, says that what Alberta's plans to do is unconstitutional again, because the, the ruling says a, a province can't uh, punish another province or protect a specific industry in, do, in punishing that province in doing so. Uh, caught up to David Eby in the hallway today. The court specifically noted that provinces are not allowed to impose tariffs or rules like tariffs to punish other provinces. That's exactly what we've been saying in response to Alberta's uh, proposed legislation. Uh, that it is unconstitutional, that they are not allowed to use their uh, oil resources to punish other provinces. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada confirming that in their decision today. I talked to Premier Rachel Notley's staff today. They see this completely differently. They say it's apples and oranges. They still intend to go ahead with the bill. The Alberta legislature doesn't sit next week, but they expect the bill to pass when the House resumes sitting the week after next. All right. Thanks very much, Keith. But first, nearly two weeks after the tragic bus crash in Saskatchewan that killed 16 people, most of them members of the Humboldt Broncos hockey team, police have released some new information. The preliminary investigation has determined that the tractor-trailer unit was in the intersection at the time of the collision. And I can assure you that all of our efforts are dedicated to determining why. Police say they don't know whether the truck was stalled or had missed the stop sign entirely, but they've sent the engine control modules from both vehicles to California for further analysis. Police closed the intersection today so crash experts could collect more information. Investigators say they've taken more than 5,500 pictures and interviewed more than 50 people, including the truck driver and survivors. Now, the Humboldt tragedy has sparked calls 
for more traffic circles or roundabouts on northern highways. Proponents say that statistics show they reduced the number of fatal collisions by 90% and injuries by 80%. They're also less expensive than overpasses and traffic lights. Well, his family visited him in the hospital every day for more than three decades. Every new Victoria police chief made a pilgrimage to his bedside. And today, Constable Ian Jordan was laid to rest after more than 30 years in a coma from being injured in the line of duty. Kylie Stanton reports. Different uniforms worn by hundreds who serve. Today, marching together as one. We're a family. It's tight-knit and you never leave somebody behind and you forget about them, regardless of how much passage of time there has been. For Constable Ian Jordan, it's been more than three decades since that fateful call. He was responding to a possible break and enter downtown in the early hours of the morning. As police rushed to the scene, his vehicle crashed into another cruiser. Jordan had been in an unresponsive state ever since. He passed away last week. Now draped in a Canadian flag, his casket is carried into the departmental funeral, where he can finally be laid to rest. Ian was the kind of man that I was very proud to serve with. Many here didn't have that chance. Only one officer currently on the force worked alongside Jordan. But that didn't stop members from paying frequent visits to his bedside, no matter how many years or decades had passed. We cared. And we never let Ian forget that he was one of us. For that, his family is grateful. Wife Hillary and son Mark, who was only 16 months old at the time of the incident. Now a benchmark of the years that have passed, he's only looking to the future. I aspire to live my life in a way that will touch as many lives as he did. Through it all, Jordan has been a constant reminder of the sacrifices officers make. Now with every step, they pay tribute to him, hoping to find some closure along the way. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. The Greater Vancouver Food Bank is celebrating its largest single donation ever. Walmart has given the food bank more than $1 million to improve its program of turning unsold but usable produce into meals like soups, sauces and stews. It's part of a $19 million pledge by the retail giant to fund initiatives across Canada and part of its goal to have zero food waste by the year 2025. We're taking a product that normally would go to waste, um, a great product to still use in the kitchen. That's what we're doing, and at the same time, we're addressing employment for individuals who are care, you know, are, are dealing with, with barriers. And, and that's why I think it is a win-win for everybody. Local farmers are worried about a new threat from a pest with a name and a bite that can make your skin crawl. Linda Aylesworth reports on growing concerns about stink bugs as they spread like wildfire just south of our border in Washington state. There are hundreds of kinds of stink bugs in the world, but only one that we care about right now in BC. It's called the brown marmorated stink bug or BMSB. They're one of the insects that Tracy Hippelizer studies at the Provincial Agriculture Centre in Abbotsford, a species that comes by its name honestly. They all have a really sort of a pungent, uh, stinky cheese, old socks kind of smell. But that's not the problem. That so many were caught on sticky traps like this one last year is. 
what we've demonstrated in 2017 is that this stink bug has established from Vancouver all the way out to Chilliwack in all the urban areas. Brown marmorated stink bugs shouldn't be anywhere on this continent. They're an invasive species from Asia that found their way to Pennsylvania in the 1990s. In time, they worked their way over to our neighbours in Washington State. The um, spread has been relatively slow, but it seems to have accelerated in the last five years. Now they're not just in the lower mainland, but the Okanagan as well. The major concerns are if it gets into the crops, what kind of crops it's going to damage, how do we predict that, uh, could it damage field vegetables, grapes, berries. Stink bugs don't actually kill plants, but they do damage the fruits and vegetables they produce. The solution? Both sides of the border are working on it. One of the great methods that we're looking at is a natural biocontrol agent that's coming from Asia. And uh, that is a parasitic wasp which attacks the egg masses of the stink bugs. In the meantime, you can help by reporting sightings to the Ministry of Agriculture. Just Google BMSB in BC. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. The role of B.C.'s lieutenant governor is almost always simply ceremonial. But Judith Gishon, who is wrapping up more than five years in the job, found herself playing a key role in the nitty-gritty world of election politics. Global's Richard Zussman talked to Gishon today. He joins us now from Victoria with highlights of that interview. Richard, uh, how did it go? Yeah, Sophie, it was 10 months ago when everyone in the province had their eyes on these steps right here at Government House in Victoria. First, it was for the arrival of Christy Clark, who resigned and asked Judith Guichon, the lieutenant governor, for another election. Guichon turned her down and called John Horgan to come here. He walked up those steps and became the next premier of British Columbia. Today, Guichon spoke publicly for the first time about that night. And what she said is leading up to it, she got a lot of guidance from people, advice. Some of it she sought, some of it she just received. But ultimately now she believes that she made the right decision that night. It's the role that's been there all along. And yes, it was exercised this year. Um, it, it, I believe if we look at what's going on right now, the House is surviving. Uh, we're going on. We've had no interruption. And uh, the legislators are doing what they're supposed to do, working away and governing. Obviously it wasn't easy, but... We had lots of good advice. Just trying to think of what would be best for the province. And what surprised me the most from the interview was she said that she served more than 1,900 days as Lieutenant Governor and the night at Government House was no different than all those other days. What stands out most for her about her time as the Vice Regal Representative to the, for the province was her work with students and young people and people in British Columbia. And she's now excited to head back to her ranch in the Nicola Valley with... Uh, a stack of books and sitting in a rocking chair. <laughs> it sounds idyllic. Thank you so much, Richard. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Sophie. Well, it looks like we might never know where pop superstar Prince got the drugs that killed him. Almost two years to the day after the artist's death from a fentanyl overdose, a Minnesota prosecutor says there will be no criminal charges. Investigators say Prince thought he was taking a common painkiller and probably didn't know it was a counterfeit pill containing fentanyl. They say Prince had suffered from pain for years 
and was addicted to medication. And while some of his friends and associates might have enabled his drug habit and tried to protect his privacy, there's no evidence that anyone knew he possessed counterfeit pills. BC Health authorities have found another problem with the lab test for colon cancer that's resulting in more positive results than usual. BC Laboratories and the BC Cancer Agency say recent immunochemical tests, which often lead to colonoscopies, are giving about 5% of patients who would have had a borderline negative result a positive result instead. They say it's a problem with the liquid solution used to test samples. They are working on a long-term solution, but in the meantime, testing will continue, and a higher percentage of patients than normal will be referred for a follow-up colonoscopy. Some surprising new statistics say BC is leading the country in C-section deliveries. More than one in three deliveries in BC hospitals, 35%, were by C-section last year. That compares with the national average of 28%. Eight of the ten health regions in Canada with the highest overall cesarean rates are in B.C. And the highest rate in the country is in Metro Vancouver's Fraser Health region at close to 40%. Fraser Health says it's trying to reduce its rate of C-sections and promote more vaginal births. For many people, the vast expanse of Whistler Blackcomb is more than enough to explore. But some people need to be a little further off the beaten path. That's the reason for an ambitious attempt to build a series of backcountry huts for those who prefer to take a more scenic and challenging route between mountains. Aaron MacArthur explains. If you wait for a break in the clouds, it's out there. Just beyond the lift at Symphony Bowl, Nearly 40 kilometers of some of the most accessible backcountry skiing in the world. Up until now, the Spearhead Traverse has been a trip for the hardy and well-packed. Typically, a three-day trek from the top of Blackcomb that horseshoes around the Spearhead Range back to the top of Whistler. The dream of Alpine enthusiasts for decades has been to build huts along the route so it can be used year-round by as many people as possible. It means you don't have to carry your camping gear and your you know, cook gear and tent and so on. Um, it, you know, it'll be a lot like the, the classic traverses in the Rockies or, um, or even Europe where you go hut to hut. The three huts will eventually sit high on the glacier of Mount Macbeth, on the summit ridge of Mount Patterson, and then in the alpine meadows above Russet Lake. The site at Russet Lake was prepared last summer, and it will be finished this summer with a goal to be ready for guests by the ski season. Well, the hut is um, over 3,000 square feet. It's two stories on a partial basement. Um, it uh, will sleep 38 publicly. We also have a custodian's room, which sleep an additional four. None of this comes cheap. Fundraising has brought in enough money to build two of the three huts, and money is beginning to come in for the third. Whistler Blackcomb stepping up to contribute, donating the value of backcountry lift tickets for the rest of the year to the project. It's kind of like if somebody were to donate to, you know, an art gallery or something like that, buying a piece of art. This is a way they can donate by going up and doing something they're really passionate about. 5,000 people a year complete the Spearhead Traverse. And with access becoming easier, there is concern that safety might be an issue. Volunteers working with search and rescue experts to compose a rigorous plan that will allow more people to enjoy a world-class experience. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. 
And from there to New York City, riders at a New York subway station get a reminder of one of the neighborhood's most famous residents right after the weather forecast. All right, Christy Gordon, we thought because it's such a lovely day, why not put you outside and Mm -hmm. blue sky all around you? That's right. I'm totally okay with that. It's been a tough spring, but today was the start of a bit of a turnaround. Now, we do still have rain in the forecast, but wait till you see this long-range forecast. It is a spectacular evening out here, but we have that rain on the way. When we look at the future cast, you'll see it will push in a chance of showers overnight, but mainly the bulk of it will push in tomorrow afternoon and overnight. You'll see that as well. We could see a good 20 to 40 millimeters of rain all along the coast. In the Vancouver region, bulk of it will be along the North Shore, but significant amounts for sure. Further inland, just showers for you. The bulk of your rainfall, if you're in the southern interior, will actually happen on Saturday. Meanwhile, we'll start to see a change for the coastal region. So there's your forecast for tomorrow. Periods of rain along the coast, mainly dry inland. You'll see the rain Friday night and Saturday. Along the south coast, though, the rainfall will push in through the day tomorrow. Lower mainland, mainly in the afternoon and evening hours. And then it will. we have a chance of showers in the morning on Saturday, but generally things will dry out on Saturday. It will be windy Saturday afternoon. But then check this out. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, a pattern of probably four to five days of sunshine. We haven't seen a pattern like that since the beginning of October. Two hottest days will be Monday, Tuesday. Now, I am just outside Canada. Canada Place with two lovely ladies, sisters, and artists because Art Vancouver is happening right now inside. It is the red carpet uh, sort of start to the event, but it runs right through until Sunday. Ladies, what can people expect from this event? Basically, Art Vancouver is an international art fair at the Vancouver Convention Center. So there's galleries and artists from all over, international, local, um, a range of art as well. There's fine art paintings different range of paintings, sculptures, basically art lovers, art collectors come down to the convention center this weekend for Art Vancouver. I, I didn't introduce you. I'm so sorry. Your name's Taisha uh, Teal and uh, Skyla uh, Way, Way, Reinen. Way, Way Reinen. Now, they are sisters, models as well, obviously gorgeous. <laughs> now, I did notice that, that a lot of the artists are inside, um, in front of their artwork, so you can really get to know the yeah. art and the Yeah, artists. so... Um, for that point, we also have the opening night in international or um, an artist runway, so you can put a face to the artwork, so you can see who the artist is. Otherwise, you just see what their work is. And who should come to this? Families, families, and- friends, art collectors, designers, art lovers, basically Maybe anyone who loves art. There's lots going on, all yeah. kinds of art. Well, it was amazing. I had to walk through and, yeah, sculptures and and carvings as well. So come on down here. Starts tonight, runs right through until Sunday. You can get tickets online, $15, I think, are the... the, uh, 15 online, 20 at the door, www.artvancouver.net. Thank you, ladies. Enjoy the evening and the red carpet. Enjoy the sunshine. Yeah, (laughs) and the sunshine, exactly. All right, you guys, a great weekend in store for us. Back to you. All right, thanks, Christy. All right, well, we're celebrating a life of someone who knows how to blend art and music, the life of music legend being celebrated in a New York subway station. David Bowie is featured in a current exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum. And Spotify has extended the tribute into the Broadway Lafayette subway station. The exhibit celebrates Bowie's relationship with New York during his career in the Soho neighborhood where he lived the last two decades of his life. David Bowie-themed Metro cards are also part of the exhibit. 
Local boy? Yes, local boy. There's a few of us around. <laughs> Not many playing in Chicago. Uh, that is true. Uh, Maple Ridge's Tyler O'Neill, though, his dream came true today in Chicago at Wrigley Field. He's a member of the St. Louis Cardinals. He got to play in his first ever Major League game, albeit as a pinch hitter, but he made the show, which was the culmination of a lot of hard work over a lot of years right in this area with various amateur teams. Put them on each side so when we're filming from forward, they can see. Jim Bodily has seen a lot of talented young baseball players in his 15 seasons with the Langley Blaze. Brett Laurie is the Blaze's most famous alumnus. Six major league seasons, including a four-year stop with the Blue Jays. But Tyler O'Neill has the potential to have an even more impressive major league career. And he hammers one down the left field line. A moonshot home run against Kershaw. At 15, you knew he's going to be a good player. Um, he could always hit, but we're just like, he's a, he's a good player. But how hard he worked was unbelievable. And by the time he was 17 or grade 11, we're like, this kid's going to be special. O'Neill was drafted in the third round by the Mariners back in 2013. And although a top prospect, he was dealt to the St. Louis Cardinals last summer. Everywhere he's played in the minors, he's torn the cover off the ball. 93 homers and 302 RBI in his last three-plus seasons. I think he's the best hitter we've ever had, and he might be one of the best hitters ever coming to this country. And we've had Brett, obviously, as a first-rounder, and I think Tyler's a better hitter than Brett. So he's a special player for sure. The first thing you notice about O'Neill is his physique. He comes about it honestly. His dad, Terry, was a champion bodybuilder who rubbed elbows and biceps with Conan the Barbarian. Like his dad, Tyler takes his body very seriously. One rep max out, two rep max outs, um, and just really exhaust the muscle group that I'm working that day. Just That's the only way I can go to bed at night is knowing that I bettered myself uh, and progressed myself towards the season. O'Neill made his major league debut today at Wrigley Field, but struck out pinch hitting in the fifth. That doesn't dampen the enthusiasm for these teenagers in Langley who trained alongside O'Neill over the winter. He's very approachable, easy to talk to. He loves to talk about the game. It's really easy to just go and pick his brain about anything you want. And last year he brought like the kids like 40 bats and 40 pairs of batting gloves and just gave all the kids all his stuff so they could have something to, for free to use, right? It just shows what kind of kid he is. He's an awesome person. And he'll hopefully have a little piece of Langley with him this weekend when he plays his first home games with the Cardinals at Bush Stadium. Biggest thing he wanted to do is our general manager, Doug Matheson, and him always would talk about, Tyler, when he makes the big leagues, we want you to wear a Blaze t-shirt and a uniform. So Tyler was like, hey, I need a red t-shirt because obviously our colors are, are navy and, and yellow. So I'm, I'm in the works right now trying to scare it and make sure I can get a, a red t-shirt hopefully by the weekend to him. Barry DeLay, Global Sports. Thomas Game four, Leafs and Bruins. One nothing Boston at this point. Thomas Placanic, who hasn't done a whole lot since he arrived in Toronto from Montreal. 1-1 in the first period. Brad Marchand with the move. A spin move. I know a lot of people don't like this guy, and he can be a bit of a dirty player at times, but he has big skill, and in big games he does come through, although he did miss the net there. But he's not going to miss it this time. Two on one. Pasternak. Marchand. Two on one makes it 2-1. And then in the third period, an almost identical goal for the Bruins. At the point, puck is lost. It's a two on one. David Krejci, Jake DeBrusque. Bruins have a 3-1 lead in the series after a 3-1 win in game number four. 
They have put out the NFL schedule for uh, the coming season, and there is your Seahawks home dates. Cowboys will be in town first. Actually, Seattle's first two games of the regular season will be on the road. There you see all their home game. Vikings will be a fun one. Of course, Green Bay, that means Chanel will be out of town <laughs> and down in Seattle on November 15th. No doubt about it. All right, thanks for... There you go. All right, thank you, Squire. Squire will take us to a music store where vinyl never goes out of style right after a break. But first, here's Kasha Paderka with five things to do this weekend. Kasha? We'll bring your appetite and appreciation for culture, dance, and entertainment. The Vancouver Greek Food Festival is back, and I'll have you loving all things traditionally Greek. Now, let's head to the Victoria Spring Expo, Victoria's largest building, renovation, and decor event. Expect the newest and best products and services for your home or garden. Three arenas, three days, and it's free. It's a great time to appreciate art in Vancouver. In fact, it's known as a first-class international art fair, and it's on at the Vancouver Convention Center. Art Vancouver brings some of the finest artwork from the country and around the globe. Think fine art, fine company, and great beer. A night of slam and craft beer has it all. Slam poetry, Port Moody brews, and pizza, all in support of the Port Moody Arts Center. Thousands will be running off the calories the following day. It's the 34th annual Vancouver Sun Run. Head out and cheer on some of the many who have been training for Canada's largest 10K race. For more on this, head to globalnews.ca slash five things. This program is brought to you by BCAA. Get a BCAA membership and save with our many partners, plus get the best roadside assistance. Coming up on ET Canada, new royal wedding details and new music news from Sarah McLaughlin, plus our very intimate interview with Tanya Thick one year after the passing of her husband, Alan Thick. It's coming up at 7 right after the news hour, but for now, it's back to you, Chris and Sophie. Thank you very much, Cheryl. We're about to drop the needle on something really cool in music. Drop the needle, Maestro Fresh West. I know. Nice. Put the needle on the record. All right. Um, okay. So uh, various uh, local record stores, I don't know all of them, will participate this Saturday in Record Store Day. We went to our friends at Neptune to talk about this. It's been around a while. Who doesn't love vinyl? And if you don't love vinyl, you should start loving it again. And here's the reason why. For the audiophile and record store owner, this Saturday is the best day of the year. It is, yeah, better than Black Friday. It's, it's better than Christmas. It's better than all of them put together. Mmm. Iggy and the Stooges. Wow. Officially started in 2007, Record Store Day is when unique vinyl is released. Unique because of new or alternate tracks. Oh, look at this one. Or records that aren't the traditional black color. Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke Limited Edition. By the way, if you melt that one down, nothing's going to happen. Sales of vinyl have gone up steadily this century as a younger generation discovers that the ancients from the 20th century were actually on to something. Absolutely, every year it's better and better. But not just a little bit, like a lot. Really? Yeah. It's like, and it's young people. It's not it's, just it's some... It's everybody, but yeah, mostly younger people. A record revival means there's a turntable revival as well, especially refurbished ones. Which, which era was the best turntable? 60s, 70s, 80s, which were the best ones? I would say in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those uh, really uh, will make. 
But I mean, almost like young people think this is kind of cool. Yeah. There's something, I don't know if it's kitschy or what it is, but there's something. That's partly that. A lot of people just come to realize that, you know, it does sound better. Our ear is analog. Can hear analog. We cannot hear digital. So that's why a record is much better than anything else. Any other uh, digital sounding stereo. Soundgarden. And that's why to the true vinyl believer, record day is sacred. Oh yeah, totally. It's like uh, some, uh, I know lots of customers that can't wait. They just can't wait for it. And uh, and I, I'm, glad, I'm glad they keep it to one day a year to make it a special event that it is. 